When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Erica M. is one of the most influential, iconic, important broadcasters in Canadian history. There, I said it. I mean, we all grew up with her on Much Music. She was such a natural, hosting the Pepsi Power Hour and, and all these great shows and new music and just being there on a Thursday afternoon after school to talk to us about what was going on in the world. Yep. And then she went on to form the Yummy Mummy Club which is this great online resource for moms all over the world to help share and help each other get themselves a voice, write, be creative. It's amazing. She's a writer. She's a songwriter. She's a mom. There's so many things to talk about. It's Eric M. this week. Do Did Will, the Story of People podcast, with one of my favorites, Eric M. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Oh, it's great. I'm glad you made the time. I know you're busy. It is absolutely frantic over there right now with uh, Much Music Land and the documentary and all these things that are coming out. So I'd imagine you're getting pulled in a bunch of directions. So thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. So Well, I promised you, you asked me several months ago and I said, not yet. And <laughs> you showed up again at my virtual front door and I had made a promise to you. So here we are. Is that press schedule... Uh, getting a little bonkers for you right now? No, no. No. The press schedule has been shared equally by a lot of the on-air people and the director of the Much Music documentary. So we've been sharing the load. And um, we're also doing it chunk by chunk because a lot of the press was done nationally for the big Roy Thompson Hall Canadian premiere that happened last week. Yeah. And so the, it was significantly more intensive at that time. And now we're going to start doing more local publicity because there's going to be a cross Canada tour and there'll be a lot of, I'm hope, hoping um, local uh, media outlets, at least the few that are still left and we'll be able to talk about the documentary then so we'll dive into the documentary there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about uh, for everyone listening and watching there's a documentary coming out about um much music and 299 queen street which was iconic for uh, for for my demo of uh, kids growing up in canada it was such a uh integral part to our youth and growing up and coming through that space much music was our mtv and along with it came all the personalities uh, that we grew up in and also just you it was you were as important to to the music and to the videos as, as it was the other way to the programming keeping you guys on the air it was all about the personalities for us mm -hmm. and uh, we have one of them with us today and erica m uh who you crossed over a ton of different shows at that time. I think everyone was probably hosting and doing a bunch of mm -hmm. different things to, to keep it going. But that building and that iconic corner and everything that was going on there is as much a part of Canadian culture as Mr. Dress Up, uh, Fred Penner, uh, 
you know, the Beachcombers, the CBC, that you, just all the stuff that we all grew up on. It's all very much a part of it. So uh, this, uh, so this is wonderful to be able to catch up and talk. So as as we dive into this thing, what I uh, this show is all about three categories about what you do, what you did, and what you will. So for now, let's introduce you to everybody. Erica M., what do you do? Well, I do a lot of different things. I'm a storyteller. I'm a content creator. Um, I like to use my voice to make really good things happen. So I get involved in projects where my voice can make a difference. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, publishing. Sometimes it's on camera. Sometimes it's podcasts a lot of advertising, uh, branded marketing. Um, my, my skills are eclectic and varied, uh, but there is a consistency in storytelling, in respecting the audience and being authentic and uh, compelling. So the switch from coming off the air, like video-wise, as far as like when much music you know, went to a lot of just straight video format for a long time. There was a point there where all the VJs started, you know, we started losing you guys. You started, you know, we, it wasn't about the on-air talent anymore. It was videos and content. Then it got away from music altogether and went to like game shows and then the Simpsons. And then it, it just kind of did the whole kind of jumbledness after all the personalities moved on. Um, was that, a difficult kind of moment to kind of leave that space and then have to carve out an, a new kind of space after being known so well for so long, because this new world that we're in right now, content creation, and I call it new because video and, and podcasting and stuff is still to me, relative infancy compared to television and what it was back in the day. So there wasn't as many options back then to be seen on film and being out there and being back in the public. What was that transition like coming out of there and then having to carve out a new career? Well, I left when Much Music was at its heyday, but I was done. I had been there for 13 years and I just needed to explore. I just needed to do something different. I grew up at Much Music and in my early 30s, I had to test myself. So I wanted to throw myself out there and see what I could do. And you're right. There wasn't a lot available out there. So I made my own. What a lot of people don't realize is working at Much Music back in the day was an incredible gift because it was scrappy. Didn't have a lot of money, but it had oodles of creativity. We had all the freedom in the world to create whatever it is that we wanted. So I learned to be entrepreneurial, although I believe it was part of it in my DNA anyway. But I learned to be scrappy. I learned to create community. I learned to respect an audience. I learned to be able to speak publicly anywhere uh, because I did live TV for... 10 years for four hours every day without a script. Um, Basically, I was doing what Second City does in many ways, which is just go with the flow and be entertaining in the moment. So I I acquired so many skills, skills that I didn't even understand that I had. I was also a writer, partly because when you are on the fly introducing bands or videos, they, it required storytelling. Mm -hmm. You had to learn how to tell stories 
to keep the audience entertained and engaged. So when I left Much Music, I did a lot of different TV shows and I did I host television and radio, but really the the real superpower I guess was was for me to notice this opportunity of media that was opening up in a grassroots way. So I had uh, sold a show to Life Network. It was called Yummy Mummy Club when I was pregnant and I wanted to talk about the world of motherhood uh, from the perspective of a very urban woman who was having a different, difficult time adjusting to motherhood. And I hosted that show, I co-produced it, I wrote it. And after two years and after it was distributed around the world, um, the show ended. And so I took advantage of that space and I built a tiny little website called Yummy Mummy Club. And over the years, I harnessed the power of the internet and social media, the power of women who are often marginalized because they are in quotation marks moms and therefore less interesting. While I knew that women with kids are um, an army of talent who just wants to partly stay home with their kids, but they all have careers and careers that they had put on hold to raise their kids. So I said to them, well, you can do both with me. And so we built, um, the most well-known online property for moms by moms in the country. And in doing so, we built a marketing agency where we worked with brands to connect them with moms, with compelling storytelling told by moms for moms. And the company still runs today. I ran it for 15 years, started it last year to Toys R Us. I still oh. oversee it. And it's a really special, safe place where women actually have a voice. Now keep in mind that when I launched this 15 years ago, most women didn't have their own social properties. Now it's a different world out there. And so YMC is more of a meeting place for moms. And it's a place that attracts a lot of different people. It's a tapestry of voices, as opposed to people who have their just one social platform. But I am just so proud to have created this and to have launched the careers of so many talented women who today make a living in this space because they started at YMC and they were able to raise their kids at the same time. And we all worked from home in a time that that was, you know, unthinkable. We were trailblazers. We won all kinds of awards for innovation and branded content. Um, And a lot of that I learned because of what I learned at uh, Much Music. I mean, it was, it, it's, it felt to me as the watcher that it was definitely uh, like a, not a Saturday Night Live vibe, but you did touch on it with SCTV where it was a, a lot of like, all right. Uh, it almost, it, it almost felt like you guys got to do whatever you wanted. And I don't, and I don't mean not uh, like let off the leash. No, actually we did. College door, no, actually, it was we just did. like show we did. up and just, what do you want to we do did. today? Yeah. No, they didn't amazing. even ask. We just did it. <laughs> no, seriously. Was... Like you, you can't even imagine the freedom that we had uh, and the trust and the encouragement. And 
you know, I know that you talk about what do I do and what I did, but what I do is I do a lot of keynotes about what I did. And the keynote is what you can learn about innovation today from Much Music in the 80s. Because mm. what we did at Much Music in many ways was so groundbreaking, it's still ahead of its curve. Most corporations still don't incorporate uh, so many of the key things that Moses Neimer had initiated with uh, Much Music, which made it such a hotbed of creativity. And part of it was this thing, we actually have a word for it in this day and age, but back in the day, there was no word for it, which is entrepreneurship, which means inspiring people who work within an industry to feel a sense of ownership for the company so that we feel that we our input is valuable and that we're engaged and what we create will change the direction of the company and that was a hundred percent accurate and it's why people never wanted to leave it's not because it was tv because a lot of people leave their jobs in television we stayed at much music because our bosses said to us here is your here's your um your drawing board here's your playpen <laughs> here's your area here's your cameras here's your lights here's your sound just go and be you and i think there's a huge lesson for organizations and companies to learn from that which is when you micromanage your people, they feel disengaged. When you open up the opportunities and treat people with respect, listen to their ideas and make their ideas happen, um, you will have an engaged uh, workforce who won't leave and take your IP with them. It's interesting, I went to hear someone speak, I can talk forever by the way, just stop me if you want, but my brain that's um, doesn't stop. And I We're was here to listen and learn. I went to hear uh, Steve Shedelsky speak. He just wrote a book called the speak up, um, speak up culture, which is essentially what we had at much music, which was we were able to speak up, uh, share our ideas amongst our peers and then build it. And very rarely were we stopped. And uh, there is sort of a, a movement now amongst business coaches and leadership coaches to encourage leaders to be more open to um, respecting their staff and giving them a voice in the current company and the future of the company as well. I think it's ex extremely crucial for that to let, especially creative minds. Are you kidding? Like I can't, I, I, I was just, when you were touching, touching on earlier about that it was a wide open, you can do whatever you wanted. That must've been nerve wracking for uh, you guys, but also refreshing and, and freeing because you could just kind of go and, and maybe if there was no threat of being fired outside of doing something ridiculous that would get you fired, but to the point where you just kind of could run within uh, yourselves and be creative. Um, I 100% I, I believe that that was the, the reason of success, the success of much music and mm -hmm. the personalities and everybody, because uh, we just felt like we knew all of you. 
Yes, which I think doesn't that's, happen. It no, doesn't happen right. in music. It doesn't happen in music right now either. Like no one knows who who any band members are of any band anymore. Well, and, I think the key to success in the public space is to be comfortable being unabashedly yourself and to know who you are, to have purpose in life, to understand what your values are. And when you have that kind of path, then you can say anything because you're being true to who you are. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the other night when I sat on stage with Sukin, Denise Donlin, Rick Campanelli, Monica Diol, um, Michael Williams, Steve Anthony, we, we sat together with the director, Sean Menard, and I looked at that team of people, and there are obviously so many other people who were huge stars and uh, huge influences, people on camera, part of the on-camera team at, at much, but we were all so unique, and we were hired because of our personalities. We were not hired because we were broadcasters because the, the conceit is that anybody can be trained to be a broadcaster and sound like anybody else. But very few people have that certain it factor who know themselves, who have passion in this case about music and are burning to talk about it. Those are the people who were on camera on much um, and they came from all different parts of much music camera people receptionists mm -hmm. uh reporters um editors they all ended up on air because their passion their interest um shone through and so they went okay you go on now and that's another really interesting thing that um people who run corporations can really learn from, which is to not pigeonhole your staff. Because once you train someone in, in the values of your business, if they feel that they can add somewhere else, give them a shot, even though they may not be trained for it. Yeah. If, they, if they are good at the previous job, give them a chance to grow and um, let them grow with the company. It's very exciting. And then again, people feel invested and that's where the loyalty is. As the listener and the watcher as well, because you see everyone like the cameraman or a woman or receptionist being included in the show. So mm -hmm. you're, you're invested in every single person that's there. You're like, oh, I want to see what they're doing today. What are you eating at your desk? Oh, I've got some noodles from down the street. We had, there was nothing like that going on. It was corporate this corporate that and there was some fun with sctv uh there was some fun with saturday night live there was some fun with this with uh kids in the hall there was some some looseness to some of that stuff but we didn't really get that as the casual list of the watcher i mean we, yeah. i would come home from school at 3 30 and it would be much music on for like four and a half hours and it was tuning into the vjs as much as it was the music now of you course, touched earlier about. i'm just going to yeah. tell you something that when i was at the screening and there was a red carpet people were it was very surreal screaming out my name screaming out rick campanelli's hey rick the temp look at me look at me and people taking our photographs because they grew up with us they they felt they knew us because they had watched us evolve yeah. 
from you know the the early um, the early hosts who didn't have a lot of broadcast skills, and they grew up with us until we all became seasoned broadcasters and sort of leaders in Canadian culture. So we're connected. We're almost like mm. family. We are. We are. I mean, we are. When someone leaves, especially when you get that connected with people and then they leave, you're like, what? How, what are we going to do now between four and five? <laughs> like, it's just, it's just, we, we were programmed back then to follow you. Uh, and, and then we would, you know, go there. And also all the big video debuts came out of there. All these very cool things were happening. And that was for us burb kids. I mean, I grew up way outside of Toronto, up close to like, you know, Port Perry, Lindsay kind of area. There was like four channels. And when we got cable, the first channel I put on was much music. My friends had to, it. You have you to know? understand also that aside from talking about the personalities and the effect that we may have personally had on you, there was there was also something about being uh, curators of Canadian culture. Mm -hmm. So it was a beautiful moment in the Canadian music and art scene because kids in Vancouver and Victoria, BC were seeing the same videos as kids who were living in PEI and Newfoundland. And there was a star system that, that started to emerge of Canadian talent that was grown through much music, through yep. the videos that we chose to play. And that, that created an industry and Canadian culture. And I feel like now, um, because there are things like TikTok and YouTube, all these different platforms, which I actually love, mm -hmm. but the difference is that there's no one curating all of this. It's all self-curating. So kids have to find someone that they like on YouTube or TikTok, and then they follow them. But what Much Music did is it curated. It brought, say, 10, 15 different on-air people on at a time and then played a bunch of music. So you didn't have to curate it. We did it for you. Yeah. And people like Strombo or whoever gave you context to the music, which again is really hard to get now. So I'm not saying like those were the good old days and now media sucks. I'm not saying that, I'm saying it's different. Yeah. And I think what, what we're missing or what young people are missing right now is a sense of cohesion and a place one place where everybody can connect and be on the same page and therefore feel a sense of oneness. And it's, you know, it's no surprise that our, our country is splintering mm -hmm. because there's, there's no media that's bringing it together. And it's happening more and more as large scale, call it mainstream media starts to crumble because they, they really were not innovative and they didn't come up with new ways of using technology to bring the country together. I think now we're culturally paying a price for it. I agree. I a hundred percent agree. I mean, I have a hell of an opportunity with this network with Cryer. It's kind of a free for all kind of same thing where we're allowed to just do what we want and create what we want. I'm just a 
guy on you know that grew up in Ontario in a basement that has a show like everybody else but I get to have and tell these stories and it's given me a platform to do that I think we need more of them Mm -hmm. and um, it it brings a sense of community together earlier you talked about um, coming in there not being journalists or broadcasters given an opportunity so I want to I want to dive in a little bit on the on the how did you do it part and this can be you know, it can, it can include all the stuff you've been doing as far as speaking and, and going from there into, you know, from Much Music into the next phase. But that initial getting hired at Much Music and then t- told basically saying, okay, go. How did you, how did you do it? How did that start for you? I failed. Then I failed some more. Then I failed some more, cried yeah. and talked to people, watched my shows back and then basically I taught myself how to be on camera. It was a very painful experience, uh, but I got really damn good at it. Um, so now I can be anywhere. I can interview anyone. I can speak live anywhere. I can hold an audience's attention anywhere because I really had the school of hard knocks uh, learning my craft in front of a country, it was really hard. And, you know, in a way it was really mean of my bosses to just Mm -hmm. throw me out there at 23 years old with no script, no training and going on live TV. But I feel like Canada forgave me. And I think they, they found it endearing because aren't we just so tired of, all these picture perfect people who look perfect, they sound perfect, they always have the exact right thing to say. And I think that a lot of people saw themselves in me because I was human. And um, I keep that part of me alive. I don't need to be perfect. And I feel like that's what connects people to me and to a lot of the former on-air people is that um, we understand that there is no such thing as perfection. Perfection is boring. So mm-hmm. yes, I, I learned along the way, but I also didn't learn too much. I didn't, I'm not like this, you know, picture perfect broadcaster. I don't think I would be really good on the CBC, nor would I, I would want to because it would sublimate who I am. Did, did you apply, do you apply? Did they have like a, like a, we're looking for on-air talent? How did, did you actually get the gig? Oh, for me, um, oh, it's a long story. I was working in the music business from the time I was 16 years old. Um, while I was going to college and going to university, I worked at Shom FM as the music librarian. I worked at um, clubs. I was working at uh, Blues and Broadway Live as wow. the DJ when I was 18, 19 years old. I worked at Sam the Record Man and AMA Records at the same time. I managed bands. I, I lived the life. And then I went to university, studied media, communications, and worked at the local record store at the same time to make some money. And then I got a job answering, <laughs> excuse me, the phone. I'm just, that's <laughs> <Yeah>, fine. <laughs> I don't even have any water. Hold on a second. Oh, no. <laughs> so, um, I got it. 
I have a frog in my throat. I got a job answering the phones for the new music, which was oh, yeah. the coolest show um, almost in the world on music. And then I became the music coordinator for that office. And I was booking the acts for the new music and city TV entertainment. Um, at the same time, I was working uh, nights and weekends as um, a host on cable company, uh, cable company uh, entertainment show. And after three years, I made a demo tape. They put me on. So every one of the people who you see on Much Music has a story like that. Um, no one was just a broadcaster. Everyone has a story of uh, how they got there. In fact, that's what my podcast is all about, Reinvention of the VJ, which is I consciously reached out to, now I've spoken to 20 of the people who were on air on Much Music. I talked to them about what is the actual story of how you got your job on Much Music? What was your experience working at Much Music? Because for me, it was really great and really terrible. So I wanted to hear other people's experience. And then I talked to them about how, because everybody left Much Music. So how did you take the skills that you learned at Much and maybe the attention or whatever it is that you gained working at Much Music, how did you take it and apply it to your your other uh, future jobs? Similar to what you're asking me, um, but uh, it was sort of replicated over and over with different people. So when you listen to all the stories, you'll see some common threads. Yeah. Um, also a lot of surprises and you'll understand that it it's hard work it's hard work what we did um and everybody earned their right to be there isn't it, I, I pay attention to what it's funny and i rarely do this for anybody but i pay attention to what everyone was doing uh, that sorry that everyone's doing now from that time or try to at least mm -hmm. keep keep an eye on what everyone's doing um there was something iconic about going into that building too i, I was tour managing bands mm, 98 to like 2003 ish mm -hmm. so it was still going there was still uh the, the performances that were happening and when you went in there uh it, it had this sense of you know family and and it was just this cool like you couldn't and wait chaos. to actually and, and chaos. chaos but there was so many people that you would meet that um just made time for you like no one was like you know you would go in we would go in the band would be setting up master t's over there you're over there george is here if someone's eating food and someone's writing stuff it, there was no closed off area it was just all open it's and it was such a cool experience it's called the living movie that yeah. that was what Moses's vision was is yeah. the living movie mm -hmm. and when he built and refurbished 299 Queen Street West which is the name of the documentary about much music and that's why they they called it that or Chaminard called it that was because the building itself is sort of a metaphor for the innovation that Moses embedded in his vision he literally built, purpose-built uh, a building with no studios, but just 
spaces and what he calls the environment where there were wires and plugs and lighting grids, sound mm. plugins everywhere. So the entire building was the studio and um, which made it entertaining and surprising. And you really got to see the inner workings in the background of all the shots. It made it totally uh, relatable too, because, mm-hmm. you know, you could see guys working on or girls or whoever mm-hmm. working on their stuff, but also working on the panels in the back. Oh, that they had to wire fix that wire. They're drywalling. It was, it was amazing. It was such mm-hmm. a great vibe when you started and you, they, they finally gave you that chance to be on air. Who was around then? Uh, Cause a bunch of people got added, but who was, who was sort of there on your first day that, my, my mentor that, was JD Roberts. He was oh yeah. He was m- my guy. He is the one who said this is how you this is how you uh, prepare for a show. This is how you present yourself. This is the kind of work ethic you need um, because the different on air people had different styles, different approaches. Um, I followed his way of working which was always be prepared always come early take it seriously be entertaining when you're on the air but behind the scenes lots of hard work and organization so i was i was the second girl the first girl was katherine mcclenahan and uh, katherine was on for a couple of months and when she left a few months later, they were looking for someone else, and that's when I started. So I was in 1985, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I think I was on nine months after they went live. I was going to say, you were part of the early group there, yes. and then people started coming in after that. And uh, and you look at, the, going back to my part about people's careers, I mean, you look at where George has gone from there, yourself, you look at where JD's gone from there, uh, some people that have just decided to stay in it. It really launched the careers of a lot of people into different things as yeah. well, in different stratospheres, which is a whole other podcast, and I'm sure they're going to talk about it in the documentary. But it's just no, like, that's it's, what my it's, podcast incredible. is. I know, it's amazing. it's interesting amazing. because when um, Sean Menard reached out to me, uh, to be in the podcast, I was the first person that he reached out to. And I was so impressed with him as a person that I said, well, not only will I be in your documentary, but I want to help you. Amazing. So I ended up becoming the consulting producer of the documentary. And I gave him my podcast to listen to. So he he basically um, based the initial premise of the movie and the the who he was going to interview after listening to the podcast because he got a sense of who people's personalities were um what their trajectories were like um and who might have been the key figures in the different eras of much Mm -hmm. that he was trying to capture so you're doing a lot of things obviously you've you've um carved out a completely brand new career uh but with the documentary coming out and and the profile that it's brought back to that location so the will part what will you do next but i want to ask a first question about that which is do you think 
much music should return in that format and could it survive in today's world? That's an interesting question. And uh, that was asked in the audience. Um, I think actually Ed the Sock asked that question, <laughs> funny enough. <laughs> um, and I think he asked Denise. I don't think it could survive in the exact same way, but I do think that there is an opportunity. Well, there's two things. Do people our age want to watch much music again? Yes. So are you asking, do I think that there is space or a place to replay some of the old videos from back there and the old interviews and have some of the old um, yet young looking hosts um, introduce those videos? I think that that would be a really astute business decision for um, by the people who own all the footage because it's just sitting in a in like a, a library in the dank building at 299 West right now. Um, do I think that there could, that this could be replicated for young people today? No, but I do think that someone needs to come up with a place, a space virtual or otherwise that brings Canadian youth together to uh, enjoy music, learn about music, have relevant conversations, and potentially be the place where youth come together in this country, because there is nowhere now for them. And as I mentioned earlier, I feel like it's a really bad thing for our country. Music is an interesting one. I've got two kids, 15, 13. They consume, I try, I'm trying very much to have them consume full records. It is definitely a one hit kind of thing and out. But um, in my business, as far as the touring business goes, there there is going to be, in my opinion, a serious lack of stadium, stadium and arena acts, if it's not already, that will sustain. All the kids have a big hit on TikTok right now. They all go do one arena show. Will they able, will come back and do it twice? Like... You know, back yeah, in the back in. Back, okay. You know, you know, and, I don't want to sound like we're old people, number one, because, oh, the good old days. But let's well, also think about there's a yeah. business model here, which I think is not sustainable, which is now the cost to buy a ticket is so outrageous that no one young can afford to buy tickets anymore. So I don't think that it's necessarily the fault of the kind of music the kids are listening to because they do find bands that they love. Sure. But the, the barrier to entry is so high. Yeah. And the battle to buy tickets, the, the number of, um, I don't know, bots or whoever it is that is buying the tickets. You know, I know that you work with Live End. They're fucked. I'm sorry. But it's, it is it's a, a really, problem. really corrupt and unfair uh, situation, which is turning people off from going to concerts. So I think that we need someone who will do it fairly, where people can start to buy tickets like the good old days um, in some way where it's more fair and people can't buy up 100 and 200 tickets and then jack the price and have the seller reap the profits of the jacked up things like 
it's like the the like live live event is in on this scam so and you better not cut this out i don't edit okay i don't because, i don't edit i, I don't edit. it is it, this is a, a major problem and some of the big artists are starting to speak out and they're trying to do something about it but until that problem gets solved you're right the stadium shows are going to start to suffer because we the consumers are getting sick of it there's an interesting part about that the discussion, and I, I'm fully on board with the bot problem. I know that they're addressing it in Congress in America right now. I know that they're addressing mm. it um, up in, in all parts of it. Um, it's an interesting part because part of the show thing that we're seeing is the all the artists are going going for it they're giving us a ton of production and kiss we're doing it everyone has been doing it they've been doing a mm -hmm. ton of production so touring has gotten very expensive for the artist um i'm always interested right now when you're coming out of the pandemic especially or when you're coming out of one of these situations where you almost have to strip it back down and go okay we need to get them back in so we need a 20 dollars ticket we need a you know we need an ability to do that. I was thinking the other day about the first time I saw a hundred dollar concert ticket. Do you remember that? It wasn't, it wasn't as it was like, it was almost late eighties, early nineties. We were seeing it with probably a Madonna or a, you know, a, a potentially a U2 or, or whatever it was, but there was that first hundred dollar concert ticket. And I, and I was thinking, we still have tickets under hundred bucks. Yeah, but we the still problem have the 50 is, and the 40, I'm going to interrupt you because the problem is not the original sure. price of the ticket; it's the oh, resellers and the platform where Livevent sells a ticket for two hundred dollars to go see Taylor Swift or something like that, which is somewhat reasonable. But they're allowing all these bots to buy these tickets and then the same day sell them for $1,600. That is illegal. And they are adding because they get a it's cut fun. of that money. So they, it's terrible. So it's an interesting, uh, how do I explain it? It's an interesting market and it's an interesting process because ultimately the ticket price starts with the artist because it has to go through some mm -hmm. some channels before it goes and no artist wants to you know go for it they don't they don't want to uh gouge the fans now the the other part of it that's very interesting is that where taylor took took on a very cool oh, sorry let me reframe that cool approach the fact that she knew that her tickets were going to be sold at a super high premium so she ended up just going to that price right away which eliminated that secondary market eliminated you know people selling them on the street remember we used to go to concerts or we used to line up at sunrise records or Ticketmaster or whatever it was and you'd still have somebody to buy a hundred dollar ticket and or a fifty dollar ticket and then turn around and sell it to somebody in yes, line for 75 it was event, more hand to hand more hand to hand out of that and that's my problem. No, they, well, no, they didn't. I understand. I, I understand that. But I understand that that side of of where you're going with it. However, um, there are the the price. The the bottom line price is the price, and so that's where 
that gets them in the door. And I agree with you. We absolutely 100% need a reasonable ticket for these kids and people to come into a show like a family of four for even under under hundred bucks. I totally get it. I know that there are some measures and stuff being put in place now to be able to try to combat that and get it down. I believe we are going to see some improvements here in the next year, especially, but it's a, it's a tough one. And it doesn't just happen with Ticketmaster. It's happening with all the ticketing platforms. It's just greed. It's greed from the middlemen, not from the artists. The artists are struggling because they're not making money selling records like they used to. So they're touring in order to make money. And then these middlemen, so the, the, the live ends of the world are, are the ones that are getting rich on the backs of the musicians and the backs of the fans. So that's my problem. That's the problem that I have with it. And I think that it is having a very damaging effect on uh, the industry on a whole, as a whole. And like I said at the beginning, when you first asked me the question, the future of the music business I don't think that young people who are not making as much money as they used to, a lot of kids are having a hard time finding jobs now. You know, there's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a different um, economic environment now. It's a harder life now that they're going to kill the music business is, is my thinking. And it's short-sighted. And um, much like all the major broadcasters and the record companies in their arrogance thought that they were the only game in town, someone is going to come in. There'll be some upstart and they're going to come up Mm -hmm. with a new system that will be democratic and fair and they won't get rich the same way, but they'll they'll steal the business away. It's going to happen. Trust me. I don't know who it's going to who's going to do it. But whenever there's like a huge behemoth, I mean, this is, this is innovation. This is the premise of innovation. I read a book called Creativity um, by the person who started Pixar. And he talks about all these big companies, and you could see it in action. It's fascinating. All these big companies who become very rich and very arrogant, who own the industry, um, they... They stop watching their backs because they feel like they are they own it. But what happens is there's a whole bunch of people who are looking up at them and studying their business model, seeing how they're doing it, and saying, I could do that better. And they start really small, and there's many of them, and they start eating away at these people's profits. And then one day, Mr. Live End's going to wake up and go, hey, our profits are down 20%. What happened? And then it's too late because the other ones are, it's like Ackman. They're eating, um, they're, they're basically eating the profits of the large conglomerations. It's what um, uh, YouTube did with Much Music, for example. There's, mm. you can study it. You can see broadcasters in their arrogance didn't take into consideration the proliferation of, of social media. 
And the small guys, the blogs, the storytellers, um, magazine companies who are often owned by the broadcasters also thought that they, they were the biggest magazines. And in their arrogance, they didn't innovate. And then what happens? I built Yummy Mummy Club and started eating the lunch of today's parent, which was more of a standard magazine. Now, they caught up because they have deep pockets, but they never got back to the level that they were before because of the troublemakers like me and other digital I don't call it, I don't call it troublemakers. I think it's, well, it's yes. innovative. And I mean, I mean, the, the thing is, is the, 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 the landscape, especially in um, media in Canada, obviously we have two conglomerates that run everything, but then you have your indies and, and people that are able to put out content um, on their own with no rules that, that, you know, get lightning in a bottle and it helps change an industry. So I don't, I don't call it, bullying i think that what it is yes. it's, it's it's innovative i think it's it's it, everyone has to change it to your point about broadcasting not evolving um they're they're feeling it now so i mean all industries it's funny because they comply to every single industry where where it goes you know and now we just got out of it yeah. with film and tv and with ai and trying to replace background actors it never like people have to embrace but they also have to not ignore and then try to find a way to work between the two of them. And it's very interesting part. And which I, I think is amazing that you've been able to, you know, rock the boat like that and take on some like today's parent and have this amazing space for, for moms and, and to feel safe and feel great and creative and create this new thing. That's not, that's, you can call it disrupting, but I call it innovative it and I call it, oh, yeah. I call we it were smart. Trailblazers. I think it's, we were pioneers. You know, we were disruptors. We were, a bunch of moms who worked out of our kitchens across the country and won awards for innovation. We won best, all different kinds of amazing awards. Um, but the, the real reward was knowing that we had unseated, you know, the mainstream and um, it's going to happen to the ticketing industry. That's my, you heard it here and it's not like I know who's going to do it, but I think that, soon i think you're going to see some yeah. major changes i really do yeah i really do i mean i see it on the i see it on the ground floor um but i also you know i get to talk to fans all the time and we get to we get to have those conversations so i do, mm -hmm. I, I see Good. a change coming um i bet you didn't and, think this conversation and I, and I, was going to be here right but it's okay this is what podcast <laughs> but, but it doesn't Man, it doesn't is it, opinionated stuff, like, holy ever. smokes what am I going to do? I have like, you know, it's like, okay, I'm just going to do this or that. I want conversations about everything all the time. I want you to mm -hmm. be in a comfortable space where you can talk and, and tell me your thoughts and then we can bounce stuff off of each other. I get an opportunity to run shows around the world. I get to see uh, the, I get to see the, you know, talk to people that can afford a giant ticket. I can also talk to a family of four that are just happy to be there mm -hmm. for under a hundred dollars. Um, it's different in different parts of the world mm. in Europe. It's different. There's just different things that hopefully all the people are talking together. I, there's also enough, it's like anything else in the world. Um, removing the greed from the equation, which I believe is a, is a, in every industry, but let's just leave it there for a sec. I do believe that there's enough smart people in the world to your point 
that will come up with a creative solution and that are going to look out for everybody and go, what about this? And I just think that we're in a space now where, where people are going because of the microscope. So where people are going, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll either listen now or actually, yeah, that is a better system. But to your point, I think people are still trying to create that system and try to figure out how it's going to, or where it's going to land and what's going to benefit the consumer, the artist, the promoter, the, and then it affects everybody. And that's in film and TV. It's, it's about every single industry. So I appreciate you bringing it up. It's not, I, there's nothing off limits on this thing. This is <laughs> talking against a, a bookshelf and a, and a brick wall. And that's what this point of the show is, which is having people on to talk about their life and talk about their thoughts. And to me, that's what makes podcasting great, especially when a guy like myself who has no broadcasting experience Mm -hmm. has an opportunity to talk to somebody like yourself. I learn from it's every great. single show that I do, and I appreciate you. Appreciate well, you it's teaching a, me today. It's interesting because you have on the screen what will you do next, and it sort of yeah. dovetails into this conversation, which for me, challenging mainstream leaders to do things differently is of great interest to me. Um, I've had a few opportunities in the last little while to be brought into companies and help problem solve and challenge people in the room to think differently. And I hope I get an opportunity to do more of that because I think that there are many leaders who are surrounded by people who are afraid to speak up because they don't want to lose their jobs. So their company is sort of status quo and they're going to lose their staff. They're going to lose their momentum. So hopefully that's something that is of great interest to me. But I also am interested now in going back into the world of broadcast in some capacity and reignite my talent for doing interviews and having conversations that are meaningful mm. with people. It's it's a tough ask because media is crumbling and it's sort of like, why would you want to jump on that sinking ship? And I don't think mainstream media would want me anyway. So I'm starting to think about like, what kind of interesting organization can use my skills with interviewing and moderating and hosting events, live events. So I'm just kind of just trying to like think differently and solve that problem, which is an exciting one for me, which is how do you take these unique, disparate, and um, unusual skills that I've acquired over the years of innovation, innovation, question asking, conversation making, comfortable in front of a camera and a mic, and turn that into a career. Well, there's more opportunities than ever. I mean, the thing is, is that not everybody has your experience. So you have an opportunity to just go ahead and jump right in where other people have to like, I mean, geez, I'm 120 episodes in, I'm still mm-hmm. fumbling my way around, but I, I I'm smarter now than I was at episode right. one or episode 10. Whereas some of these kids are already making a thousand dollars a month on TikTok just by posting videos of their dog. Like people are finding their way of doing it, but you being able to have a show and taking your, your experience into it. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to be easier for you. What I'm going to say is, is that you will at least, 
I know that you're going to come out with like all your tools and it's going to come out swinging and it, your, your chance of success at that, at least whether it's an independent show from your basement. No, that's studio, not what I want to do. Where do you got to go do downtown? That. You want to do a bigger do thing. I something yeah. where I want to be part of a corporation's vision. I want to be the voice of a corporation, mm. a company, a brand who is looking to make a splash in the media world and they need someone that they can trust to be the face of it, um, we would have to have shared values. They There needs to be sure. whatever their purpose because the best brands, the best corporations are purpose-driven brands. I mean, they could be selling widgets, but there's some sort of a purpose behind um, what they're doing. And so I believe that there's amazing opportunity to partner with a brand who wants to make a difference in the world, spark conversation about something and needs someone who has a skill to actually um, create a conversation that will be meaningful, intelligent and entertaining. That's a hard mix and I can do that. It is. But aren't there more options now? Well, there's too many options now. To find, well, I was going to say too things. many, but there are more options now to find that that for you and say, well, these are at least the 30 that I think are doing it. And then how yes. can I fit in? I would imagine that that part of it would be, would be um, at least there's a few more options to look at and decide who you want to. You know what? To. Life right. is about going out and asking for what you want. It's another thing that I speak about. Like when I when I have yeah. keynote, um, when I get booked for keynotes, it's 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 one of those. Well, Erica, that's kind of obvious. But if it's so obvious, why aren't you doing it? Um, people always ask me, well, "How did you get that job?" or "How did you end up there?" And I always answer with, "Well, I asked." And I also will mm. add to that that for every time I ask. I get turned down probably 50 times at least. And I'm Erica Frickin' M. And I get turned down all the time. And I have to get up and not take it personally, water off a duck's back, and go and ask someone else. And that's that's how you achieve success, is you just keep on putting yourself out there. So can I ask then before I let you go? Can I can I ask about um, coming out of much much music? Then did you feel uh, when you left uh, at the peak? You said did you feel though that you're ready? You can accomplish anything. And then the first time you were told no and turned down, how did that feel? Oh, I've been turned down many times before my time at Much. I'm just mean coming out. Of, I'm just saying coming out of much. It's like, okay, I feel great. This is the, the peak. I feel like I've accomplished everything at much. Mm. I'm a personality. People are tuning in for me. Uh, but I'm going to, you know, manif mm. manifest mm -hmm. this, this new job I'm going to get, or you go into it thinking that maybe you have it. Was there a moment there? And this mm. is more of a lesson for the listener and the watcher where you're like, uh, I think I got this. And then you were turned down and then you had to kind of restart and go, wait a minute, what, what the fuck? Yeah. Why was it turned down? I, I, I think what? that what? I have many, many, many of those stories, to be honest. 
it kind of feels like you've just been punched in the stomach, kind of feel nauseous and um, like, yeah, someone kicked you in the stomach or something and a little bit dazed. And it's not because Mm. I used to be Erica M. It's just that feeling of they don't get it. They don't, don't they see? Don't they understand? And I've had to learn that something that my my ex-husband said to me that still rings true. He said to me a long time ago, he had a way with words, there's a seat for every toilet. And there is a lot of truth in that, which is when you put yourself out and you can see the, the fit, I can see myself in that role or I can see myself fitting in somewhere and the other people turn me down. It's not because I'm not good and it's not because they're assholes necessarily in either case. It's often because they don't see that I'm good because it's not the right fit. We're not on the same plane. And I use that, by the way, even when I get kicked in the stomach and told no. To me, my philosophy is that is the beginning of a relationship if I handle it properly. If someone says no, I'll say, oh, damn, Amber, how come? Well, if they'll tell me, then I learn something. And I might say to them, "Yeah, hey, do you mind if I reach out to you in a few months? Because I have, a diff- I have another idea to reach out to you with. Inevitably, they'll say, sure. And so my Rolodex is big, my virtual Rolodex, and um, my relationships with people are great. I've had great relationships with people that I worked with at Much Music right until the last client who actually, for YMC, canceled their advertising contract, came back and said they want to do something. They didn't want to do anything, but I was able to say, you know what? Let me come back with you to you with this idea. And they're like, oh, I, I'll do that. And so mm. it's understanding that there's always an opportunity lurking in every time you're turned down. But it's up to me to find those opportunities. And it's up to me to be positive, even when I feel like shit. And I just keep on saying to myself, it's not about me. It's about the moment. It's not the right fit now. It didn't work or it hasn't worked yet. And so it's, it's a sense of hope and self-confidence to some degree. And it, you know, even if I'm fooling myself into feeling hopeful it's how i survive it's a good life lesson though for everybody because we always we don't always get what we want we have to learn from every situation we're put in um i you know i I wanted to run concerts and run around and and do things in my twenties. And it wasn't given to me. Uh, I had to really put the time in, but then I meet 20 year olds that are like 25, 26 and they're in it. I'm like, I could be like, 
you didn't sleep on a couch in a van trying to get to from Winnipeg to Thunder Bay and my, but you just got it handed to you. So we have to kind of create those from every minute and then turn it in and just use it as fuel yeah. to, to move on. Um, so you got, you're going on tour. Uh, last thing here before we go, you're going on tour uh, with this thing. Um, is it everybody no. going? You guys are, are going to go out and talk about it? Sure How's yet. this work with the, with the, the tour? I don't know. If, well, you remember much music. You never really knew who you were going to get live. And so it's going to be sure. the same thing. There'll be um, whoever is available will go. Um, Sean Menard, who is the director, he's paying for all of this. So he's, wow, he doesn't know how many people he can afford to bring. It's not like he's paying us, but he still has to pay for our flights and our hotels and stuff like that. So sure. um, uh, it's, I don't know. It's, um, it's going to be a, a crazy roller coaster. And um, I'm sure that it will be fun no matter who shows up. It, uh, it starts October 17th. I mean, there was a one-off uh, in Toronto, but it starts October 17th I will from be Montreal, in Montreal all the way. I know that's the first one to Winnipeg. My dad is there, okay. so I'm going to Montreal because I want to see my daddy. It's gonna go, yeah. Well, any opportunity to get home. I mean, I do the same thing. I can't <laughs> wait to get home when I'm on tour. And I'm like, how can I get back to Ontario? Go see my dad and sister. It's a, I try to tie it around my tour schedule. But it's uh, Montreal, St. John's, Charlotte, Halifax, Ottawa, Calgary, Hamilton, Edmonton, Regina, Vancouver, Victoria, and Winnipeg. Uh, I was excited to see Vancouver, but I'm going to be away in November. So I won't get a chance to see it. But I got, I'll have to wait for it to get on the air. And I'll Sounds check good. it out then. Okay, Erica, I really, really appreciate no the time today um these are the chats I, I i i love to have on on these things that are wide open and we can talk about a, a bunch of different things um where can people find you online we can direct them to there uh, i also highly recommend that everyone listens to your podcast reinvention of the vj uh, to check out uh, chats with george and and all the vjs from the time steve and and uh Lichka, who i think is going to come on this show here in a couple of weeks too so uh please tell me where well i guess find you. you could go to my website which is ericam.com um that was very creative ericam.com i uh, go to linkedin i'm on linkedin i'm on instagram i'm on facebook i'm on twitter you know it's just you could find me. If you really wanted to, you could find me. Well, I appreciate the time uh, for getting back to me uh, and coming on this show. This it really means a lot to me. I want to wish you all the best with the documentary and any of the dates that you make it to. Uh, I have some ideas for you for this other thing that you want to get into. So let's chat off air one I like time. It. No, chat off on air, on, on air one time. But. Um, uh, that's Erica M. This is Dude Did Will, the Story of People podcast on the Cryer Media Network. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, Bye. we'll see you next week. Dude Did Will, the Story of People podcast is brought to you by my friends at Cryer Media, cryermedia.co. 50-plus podcasts, news, sports, entertainment, wrestling, comic books. Hey, Chris Machete. And uh, politics, of course, with our good pal, Charles Adler, who was on the show a couple weeks ago. So go over there, cryermedia.co. There is tons of stuff for you to, to, to read and listen to uh, that'll suit everything that you might possibly be looking for, as well as my friends over at the Sound Off Podcast Network, Matt Kundal and his team. Big, big, big 
supporter of me and helping me through some of the tech and all these different things that we're trying to do to to make this weekly show entertaining for you. Uh, he's got a whole ton of pods over there too: health and wellness, uh, fitness, uh, politics, uh, broadcasting, because uh, it is the Sound Off Podcast Network. They deal with broadcasters and all sorts of things. Plus. He also hosts Erica's podcast over there too. So make sure you check them out. Cryermedia.co, soundoff.network, the Soundoff Podcast Network. Wherever you get your pods, they're all there and they're online. And maybe you'll add them to your library uh, and tell them, do did Will send you? All right, friends. Thanks for listening. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.